You're listening to The Fox, a podcast novel written and read by Arlene Radaski. Chapter 22, Ain, May 2005 Noisy London, I'd almost forgotten. Fort William's traffic was nothing like what flew by my little apartment above the bookstore. Arriving back late on Friday night, I fell into bed and slept until the din woke me at half-past eight. I tried to phone George's home but got no answer. His office didn't answer either. I had called him a dinosaur because he wouldn't carry a mobile. Too damned intrusive, he'd said. There was no answer all day Saturday, so I finally decided he must be out of town. Saturday wasn't a total loss. I did get to visit with some friends from MGC and decided I'd made the right decision by going to Scotland to chase my dream. Talking to them brought back all my old, dreary, depressing thoughts about jobs in my past. Writing up reports and statistics didn't fill my life with any light. I ordered after-dinner drinks for my friends and I silently toasted myself and my choice of a new life. Sunday morning. The bookstore closed. Quiet. Allowed me to laze around until ten in the morning, rereading my notes on Mark's earlier site. The chieftain's tomb where I'd found the first bowl, the first one Jana led me to. It was in the University of Birmingham's Museum of Ancients, along with the other tools Mark found in the tomb. I leafed through the pictures I'd taken of the bowl, found under the stone where it had lain for so many years. Jimmy's words ran through my mind. The same artist probably had worked on the bowl that contained the ashes I'd found in the cave. Jana, I was certain it was her. I'd never be able to prove it to the world, but I didn't need to. I was proving it to myself and remaking myself in the process. If Jana wanted to help me along, who was I to dissuade her? I called George's home again. Three rings. Why hadn't I called before I left Fort William? I was about to hang up when she answered. Hello? Oh, oh, hello. I hope I have the right number. Is George home? May I ask who's calling? Uh, my name is Ain. Ain McRae. Oh, my. Ain. This is Meg. She sounded a bit dazed, not at all like her normal self. Meg Smith was George's secretary while he worked at the university. Also, Sophie's friend. She helped when she could while Sophie was ill. She'd retired at the same time as George and now made sure George had food in the house and didn't get buried under an avalanche of his books and paperwork. George paid her to stop by once or twice a week. She came more often as a friend. Her husband died many years ago and there were no children. I often wondered if they were going to get married or stay in this strict relationship, stepping around their need for each other's comfort for the rest of their lives. Ain, George is not here right now. He's... Well, could you come by? Yes, I can be there in a little over an hour. Meg, is he in hospital? No, not in hospital, Ain. Let's not talk on the phone. I'll be waiting with a bit of lunch for us. See you in a bit. Her voice was not jolly. Not jolly at all. My thoughts rambled while I rode the underground. She said George wasn't in hospital. A deep, dark thought about death sprang forward, but I quickly buried it. He must be on a trip. Yes, a trip. Why didn't he call me and tell me? Well, he wasn't beholden to me. We weren't related. We were friends. 
No, more than friends. I considered him my uncle, but still he didn't have to call me every time he left town. Oh, why did Meg's voice sound as if she were holding a secret close to her heart? And why was I so frightened? Now that I think about it, he really didn't look good when he got on the train last week, but he didn't tell me he felt ill. And Meg said he wasn't in hospital. All these thoughts swarmed through my head as I jumped on the tube at the marble arch, running up and down the stairs when changing at Trafalgar and then on to Waterloo. George lived near the Royal Theatre. When Sophie was well, they'd love to go to the theatre. Since she died, I don't think he'd gone once. He told me he didn't need to live through others' lives. His life was filled with his own memories to keep him company. I didn't think he read a novel or a work of fiction after her death. It was as if a door closed to a part of the world for him when she died. He lived buried in his history. The buried memories of others released through his archaeology. His life. I knocked. Meg opened the door. She looked just as she had the last time I saw her several years ago, thin as a straw, gray hair so tightly pulled back into a bun at the nape of her neck it seemed to give her brown eyes an almond shape. Her strong, long-fingered hands grasped my shoulders and pulled me into the house. Though she was severe-looking, she was anything but. Every bone in her body was friendly. She wasn't much for powder or lipstick. It was to her benefit now, as powder and lipstick seem to gather in a woman's creases and wrinkles as we age. Rose water. She always smelled like rose water. Hugging me close, I could tell she still wore it. Ain, oh, my dear, it is so good to see you. Come in. I've sandwiches and tea for us. Here, sit in the study. I'll bring them down. I watched as her calf-length, black skirt, and sensible brown shoes marched up the stairs to the kitchen. I stood in George's study. Its dark mahogany shelves overflowed with books and papers. I also saw labyrinths. He told me he'd been collecting them, but there were close to fifty of all sizes in here. Some on top of books, some standing propped by papers, and others braced by little plate stands. There were even a few on the arms of the leather chairs. Some looked ancient and some new. It was as if he'd started his own museum of labyrinths. I picked up a bronze one with its own stylus in a hole on its side. A medieval eleven-circuit pattern that looked like the Chartres labyrinth. Four quadrants walked and traced to meditate. Heavy in my hand, it looked as if someone had used it lovingly for many years. The edges of its grooves were worn. I see you found his pet. I jumped. I'd not heard her come down the stairs. Pet? I didn't know what Meg was talking about. I looked around for a small animal or bird. I was surprised as George never liked animals underfoot. What pet? That thing. He carried it around in his pockets until he wore holes in them before he went up to Scotland. It is not a light thing, as you can tell. He decided not to take it with him on this trip. Too cumbersome, he told me. He got it from a friend who found it in an estate sale in Ireland. He'd taken it to the park before each sunrise and sat on a bench, waiting for the sun to come up. She started pouring tea into rose-patterned china cups. Sophie's rose-patterned china cups. My mouth watered. The cheese sandwiches looked yummy, and the steam from the tea smelled like Taylor's of Harrogate's Scottish breakfast, George's favorite. Then she stopped and sat the teapot down. My eyes moved from the teapot to her face, and I watched it fill with even more wrinkles as tears filled her eyes and slid down her cheeks, 
spotting her white blouse. I lost my appetite. And now, of course, he can't use it. Ain, dear, George didn't want me to call you. He told me to tell you that he went out of town if you called or came by. But I can't do that. I closed my eyes. Bad news was coming, and I didn't want to hear it. I took a deep breath and opened my eyes to look into her teary ones. George is in St. John's Hospice. He's been there for a week. He is dying, Ain. Dying. Her hands covered her face, and her shoulders bobbed up and down as she sobbed. I stared at her, unbelieving. A week? He'd gone in right after he left Scotland. He didn't seem sick. What does she mean? He's dying. Meg, if he is so ill, why isn't he in hospital? His treatments have stopped working now. She lifted a tissue to her eyes. He knew this some time ago and made plans with St. John's before he left for Scotland. I didn't want him to go up there. I thought he should stay here and fight this thing, his illness, but he is such a stubborn man. I doubt if even Sophie could have convinced him otherwise. Anyway, I've been told that he is close to dying. Death had visited me before. My father died before I went to university. Then my brother Donnie, and soon after, my mother. But I'd not grown used to it. Does anyone get used to death? Now George. I knew he was ill, but it was always in the distance. When I asked how he felt, he'd always told me he was fine. Looking out the window at the road in front of George's home, I wanted to yell and stop the traffic. George is dying! But the cars continued on their way. Life was the same for the people in them. George's death would not affect them. I gently took hold of Meg's shaking shoulders until she looked up at me. I need to see him. Can I visit? Is he well enough for a visit? Oh, oh yes, of course. Let me call and tell them you're coming. I'll be right back. As I waited for her return, I picked up the labyrinth and held it. My trembling hands would have dropped the stylus, so I traced the groove path with my fingers. Years of quests and meditations were recited over this piece of metal. It felt warm to my cold fingers. As I traced the path, I silently begged whatever powers that be to let George be well. When I got there, I wanted him to be standing at the door saying, What am I doing here? Let's get back to work, Ain. There are years to uncover and mysteries to find answers for out there. Call a taxi and let's go. Grasping the sculpture to my heart, I wished him to be well. I don't know how to handle his death. Meg walked back into the room. She hugged me and said the hospice was expecting me. The address of St. John's Hospice and Cab Fare were stuffed into my hands. But aren't you coming with me? The thought of doing it on my own made my heart beat fast. I was close to panic. No, I, I can't. I have said my goodbyes. I have done all I can for him. I can't watch him die. I call every day and tell the staff to pass along my hello, but go and watch him die? No, I'm not going. They'll call me when he goes. Who else would they call? I'm all he has left. Well, you and me, Ain. I would have called you after. He didn't want you to worry over him, but I guess you were supposed to be here. She picked up the tea and still full sandwich tray and started climbing the stairs in her sturdy shoes. The taxi will be here in a moment. I took the liberty of calling. 
They'll take you there straight away. She stopped and turned her head to me. Tell him I'm praying for him and think of him, please. Her tears started again. She snuffled and climbed to the kitchen. My taxi arrived just as George's front door closed behind me. Light filled the reception area, light and soft classical music. Never a music buff, I couldn't tell what music was playing, but it soothingly filled my ears. I expected the medicinal smell of a hospital, that sterile and aseptic smell that permeates clothing and never seems to come out. I was surprised at the lack of any odor. No antiseptic, floor cleaners, or what I dreaded most, death. I didn't really have an idea of what death would smell like, but I was expecting it here. Then, as I stepped up to the reception desk, perfumed lavender wafted into my nose. The woman, Jane by her name tag, must have lavender lotion or a candle nearby. I preferred the scent of real lavender. Good afternoon. May I help you? Yes, my name is Ayn McCrae. I'm looking for George Wymouth. I mean, his room. Mr. Wymouth, Jane said, running her finger down a list of orders. Yes, Ms. McCrae. I'll call and let them know you're here. They're expecting you. Overstuffed chairs sat heavily on a blue linoleum floor and filled the reception area. Water gurgled over stones in a small table fountain. Doors opened and closed down the long hall to the right and left of the desk. I wondered if George would appear around the corner of the wall at any moment. Ms. McRae, Sarah will be right here. Would you like to sit down? I wondered if she wore that look of condolence for every visitor who came here. No, thanks. I'll just wait here. Another door opened and closed, and a woman slipped around the corner, smiled at me, and then Jane, and at Jane's glance, back at me, extended her hand for me to shake. Hello, Ms. McRae. My name is Sarah McDougall. I'm working with Mr. Wymouth. I'd like to talk to you for a minute before we go into his room, if you don't mind. Sure, and please call me Ayn. Good, and call me Sarah. She led me around the corner. We passed three rooms and then came to a door labeled Chapel. She opened it and invited me in. The room was small. Four pews left a narrow walking space between them and the walls. The wall at the far end was covered with a pleated, deep purple velvet curtain. An oak table sat in front of it with two brilliant yellow mums on it. The blossoms seemed to explode out of the quiet colors behind them. A golden chalice sat between the plants, simple yet spiritual. We sat and she began. Mr. Wymouth has asked me to explain a bit of what is going on in his room right now. He is actively dying. He may not live until morning. She stopped when she saw the disbelief in my eyes. I just saw him last week. He looked tired. That's all, tired. He told me he was just coming in for tests. How can he be dying? He stopped his treatment for his illness, leukemia, Several months ago, he was about to come here when he left for Scotland. I was surprised he did as well as he did while there. When he got back home, he was completely depleted and very weak. An ambulance brought him here from the station. Oh, my God, what can I do? Can I donate blood or something? My hands searched my jean pockets in vain for tissues to stem the flow of tears. Instead, my hand found George's labyrinth. It must have slipped into my pocket when Meg told me about George. My hand came out of the pocket empty. Sarah reached into her tweed jacket pocket and pulled out a handful for me. 
I thanked her. He has slipped in and out of consciousness the last twenty-four hours or so. Oh, and he sees and talks to Sophie. What? He sees Sophie? Sometimes the people we love who have died return to us just before we pass. I consider it a blessing when it happens. When she is there, he smiles and looks into a far corner, and the room fills with love. A slight smile and faraway look came into her face, and she sighed. Then she refocused on me. We can go in now if you like. He's ready for you. I wasn't ready to hear this. I knew he was looking across the Celtic river of death he loved to go on and on about in his classroom. A few of us were allowed this vision. It meant he was seeing across to the people who stood there to welcome him. Sophie. Will I be the only one in the room? My mouth was dry. He was so close to death and I didn't know if I could be there alone with him. I'll be there. I'm staying until he passes or comes through this crisis. I took a deep breath. The only other person I'd seen just before death was my mother. She was in the hospital, hooked up to what looked to me to be every machine in the building. I went into her room, but she was in a coma. Her heart attack was sudden and massive. She died that night while I was getting coffee. What should I do? What do I say? Can he talk? Yes, he's able to talk a little. The best thing is to just be there. Hold his hand and let him talk to you. What you need to say will come to you. Don't force it, but it is important to tell him goodbye. She squeezed my hand. You'll become a part of this room very quickly. It's full of peace. She smiled, and I believed her. We walked into George's room. Drapes of royal blue and forest green framed the bed. A deep green fleece lay on top of him, his body an irregular mound under the blankets. His head lay on a pillow wrapped in deep blue satin. I stood still until I saw his chest move. A small weight dropped from my shoulders, and I started to breathe again. He looked so small. I remembered him as a giant of a man. Did he collapse because he came up to Scotland? I whispered. She took my hand and said, No, dear. The trip didn't cause his illness. He's been ill for several years. Actually, I think the trip to Scotland did him a world of good. He would have been lying here just waiting if he hadn't gone. No one is to blame here. Death is a part of life. Mr. Wymouth wants you to know that what is happening is all by his choice. I'm sort of a coach. I create a comfortable and peaceful death for those who ask me to help. He and I have been planning this for several days now. I have helped him create a place he feels secure in, and he's asked me to do certain things that help him feel like his work here is done. I wondered if that included saying goodbye to his friends. Why didn't he call me? Ain, Sarah whispered, come sit here. She pushed a straight-backed padded chair in line with George's chest. I sat. She reminded me of my mom. When she spoke, her golden hair brushed the tops of her shoulders, and she leaned her head to the right. About sixty years of experience softened her kind face. She seemed to glow, even in the dim light of this room. George's friend was an angel. She leaned over George and gently tapped his shoulder. George, Ain is here. 
I'm going to burn your memories now. His eyes fluttered. His eyelids looked translucent. When he opened them, it seemed his intense blue eyes were pale and unfocused. Do you need another pain patch? Sarah asked. Mm, no. George's eyes found me, and a light seemed to come on inside. I, I want to be clear. Those things are wondrous, but they take me away. He looked at me, and I knew he was telling me he could stand the pain for a few minutes, for me. George, do what is best for you. If you're in pain, treat it, I said. Oh, Ain, I'm fine. I want to talk. How are you? George, you are not fine. Why didn't you tell me or Mark? Does Mark know? No, Mark doesn't know. His arm slid out from under the covers, and his hand lay palm up on his bed. I slipped mine into it. His skin was dry and papery, thin blue veins visible. Why is this happening? Why are you dying? I don't think I can take this, George. I feel like my links with my past will be all gone. Why didn't you tell me? Well, maybe I made a mistake there, Ain, but I really wanted you to concentrate on getting your life back. And why am I dying? It is my turn, Ain. We all do it, just in different ways. Sarah carried a stand topped with a bronze bowl to the other side of his bed. I have the memory strips here, George. Ain, George and I have written some of his foremost memories on these strips of paper. Some are things he loved and others are things he wishes to be forgiven for. Memories to release. She laid a bundle of strips of paper tied in red thread at the bottom of the bowl. She dropped a lit match into the bowl and the paper ignited, flashed, and was gone. No smoke or flame. I was shocked. How did you do that? I asked. We used flash paper. No danger of fire, said Sarah. Flash paper. A life gone that quickly. Sarah, thank you. I do feel better. George turned his head on his satin pillow and faced me again. What do you believe happens after death, Ain? Do you believe we go on, pass over to another side? George, I don't know what's on the other side. I really want to believe we cross over and spend eternity with those we love and meet all those who come ahead of us. Or maybe even come back someday, ourselves. But right now, I'm trying to understand why you are here. I'm not ready for this. I want you around for many more years. No, I am dying. I don't want to, but I've no choice. The only choice I have left is to die the way I want to. His arm waved around the room. With ceremony. He laid his arm back on the bed, and I took hold of his hand again determined to hold it as long as I could. We do everything we can to stay alive, but we haven't found the eternal springs yet. So, we do what we can to make the situation better around us after we die. Do you think Donnie planned on dying? Do you think he wanted to become a hero, a martyr? No. He would rather have lived to watch his kids grow, but life just didn't give him that chance. He did what he could at that particular time. He saw the chance to save his buddies and did the best he could with his life. His other hand came out of its warm cocoon and rested on my cheek as he looked directly into my eyes. I am ready, 
I believe there is something else after death. I am not a churchgoer, as you know, but there's another place to go. I know it. I've talked to Sophie. She comes to me now, and I am ready to go to her. His hand fell from my face, and he grew restless. Sarah, it's time for another patch. She went to a table by the wall, entered something into a laptop, and brought over a band-aid-looking patch. This is morphine. He'll sleep soon. She further softened the lights in the room. I remembered. Sarah told me to say goodbye. I pulled the labyrinth out of my pocket and gently laid it in the hand I was holding. George, here's your labyrinth. Meg said you'd love it. His eyes grew moist. Thank you. I've been dreaming about this today. I'm so glad it's here. After, when I don't need it anymore, I want you to have it. It brought me peace. I know it will help you. Okay, now is the time to do what I was here for. George, you know I love you. You've been so kind to me and my family. You took over for my dad in so many ways when he died. I'll miss you, but I know you want to be with Sophie. Go be with her, George. Leave the pain here and be with her. I'll be fine. You have given me all the skills I need to survive, and now your labyrinth for strength. I leaned over and kissed his cheek. When I straightened up, his eyes were closed, his hand lying loosely in mine. Sarah walked over to a tape player and turned it on. A voice came through the fog in my brain, and I recognized it. Meg Smith. Then I understood what she was saying. She was reading some letters addressed to George. They were the love letters Sophie wrote to him while he was gone on his many projects. She couldn't go along, she was teaching, but they kept their love alive through these letters. Meg's voice wavered and hesitated often as she read them. I realized the sacrifice it took for her to do this. Meg loved George. She was sending her love to him for the last time by reading these letters to him. No wonder she couldn't be here. Time seemed to stand still and rush by. George's hand was still in mine. Sarah brought me strong tea and buttered toast. I'd not eaten all day and was grateful. It was about midnight when George turned slightly to his left and whispered, Sophie, Sophie. I looked and couldn't see anything. Was she really there? Could he see her? Sarah took his other hand into hers and softly chanted, Go, George. Go with Sophie. You have been released, George. Go with Sophie. Go with Sophie, George, I said. I'll be okay. I'll find myself. Be at peace. George sighed and stopped breathing. After sitting with him for a few moments, I went to the brightly lit lobby. No one was sitting in the chair behind the desk. I called Meg on my mobile and told her. She sobbed and hung up. After a moment more in the glaring lights, I went into the chapel. Oh, God, I hope there's more. Another side. I have people I want to see again. My mom, my dad, my brother, and now George. There was one more call to make. I dialed. I heard a sleepy, hello. And then I cried out, Mark, George is gone. He just died. I was with him. Oh, Mark, I need you.
I sobbed. Please come to London. Ain? Oh, God's above. I'll be there as soon as I can. You'll be all right, honey. I'm coming. Please join me again for another chapter of The Fox by Arlene Radaski. Now enjoy the music of Steve McDonald's song, Pain, from his album, Highland Farewell. His music can be found at www.etherian.com, who along with Steve have allowed me to use the music in my podcasts. Learn more about The Fox at www.radaski.com. Hey! 